Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 9th, 2011, and my guest is Tyler Cowan, professor of economics at George Mason University. He blogs at Marginal Revolution, and his latest book is The Great Stagnation, How America Ate All the Low-Hanging Fruit of Modern History, Got Sick, and Will Eventually Feel Better. Tyler, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. So our topic for today is the Great Stagnation. Let's start with what you mean by the Great Stagnation, and then we'll move on to your explanation for it. But when you talk about the Great Stagnation, what phenomenon or phenomena are you referring to? If we look at the earlier part of the 20th century, the standard of living for the average family increased very rapidly. If we compare, say, a 40-year period, 1917 to 1957, people are getting electricity, flush toilets, automobiles. There are very rapid increases in the standard of living. If we look at the same data or the anecdotes post-1973, there's a slowdown in growth in living standards for the average person or the average family. And that's what I mean when I refer to the great stagnation. My grandmother saw a lot more change in her life than I have in mine. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that, obviously, but I'm also a little bit of a skeptic. So one thought is that in the 1917 to 1957 period, of course, there was an immense amount of ups and downs. We had a, uh, a world war. We had a depression. And yet, as you point out, at the end of that period, uh, standard of living in 57 was much, much different, very dramatically different than in 1917. The 1973 cutoff, though, I find a little bit strange. So if we look at, say, the, the post-war period, uh, post-World War II, let's go 46 to 73, as you do in the book, and then 73 onward. Talk about the distinctions there. What, what do we see there? If you look at median income, median family income since 1973, uh, it doesn't even double. There are different ways of measuring it. Under one plausible estimate from 73 to 2004, it's only gone up 20 to 30 percent. In the last decade, it's actually declined. There has not been net jobs growth in the last decade. So one can think of the stagnation as coming in phases with different starting points for different parts of it. Let's consider education. From 1900 to 1960, rates of graduating from high school went from very low to 60 uh, percent. Uh, the rate has stagnated now for several decades, and it's actually declining. So when it comes to education, which is a big part of our economy, labor accounts for almost 70% of economic output, uh, it's not obvious we're really doing better, at least at the K-12 through level. If anything, it seems we may be moving backwards. Well, there's, there's some change in the, uh, in the data on, on completing high school, but of course, proportion of Americans attending college and finishing college has gone up dramatically over, if you go back to the 1946, say. Right. But it hasn't lately. It's stagnated again. It's also stagnated. That's right. I would also worry about what people study. I think uh, that's a separate question. Sure. But, uh, so l- let's talk about l- a little bit about the data because the data are a little bit tricky. In particular, uh, you talk about median income. And the reason we do usually look at median income is as opposed to, say, mean income. Mean income would be the average. And that would include very high income people who would pull the average up and would not represent the typical American, which is what you're really talking about, about mass um, uh, affluence, and it's the slowdown and the growth of that affluence in the, say, from the 70s onward. If we look at the actual um, median income then, which would seem to be better than mean for that reason, there, there's still some problems with the median. Uh, the most obvious few, I'd like to get your reaction to, I know you've written a little bit about it in the book, and also you've blogged about it, on it at Marginal Revolution, but let's take there's three or four I want to look at. First, there's the measurement of, of uh, the price level. So when you're comparing income in 1995 to 1973 or 1973 to 1946, you have a problem, which is you're measuring it nominal dollars. You, you don't want to look at that, obviously. You want to deflate it because what we're interested in is purchasing power. So when we're trying to assess purchasing power, we're going to inevitably struggle with how we define sure. the price index. So why do you think – a lot of people argue – I'm one of them, that the price index is not well measured. Uh, in particular, it may understate um, 
it may be overstated. Therefore, it understates the uh, the growth in income. So, what what do you what's your assessment of that? There are some biases in how we measure inflation, uh, but if we look at people who have studied, when are those biases most likely to be large? Very large. Those biases will be largest in periods when you have fundamentally new goods entering the marketplace and spreading. And again, think back to radio or flush toilet or electricity. So we may well be over-measuring inflation throughout all of history, but if we were to have correct measurements, the indication is that the growth gap between early periods and later periods would in fact be bigger than we're currently measuring, not smaller. Yeah, I agree with that. The problem with that, though, for me, I think most people would agree that it's very problematic to compare, say, real income in, in 1990, 2000. Let's go, but let's go a century back. Let's go 2000 to 1900. If we talk about that transformation, it's very hard to measure precisely. One reason is exactly what you talk about. Uh, when we try to figure out what purchasing power is and we're looking at various price entities, you know, the example I like to use is um, – Portable music. Portable music in 1900 was four violinists following you around. Uh, portable music in 2000 was an, was a, an iPod. There's they're very it's very difficult to correct. You would, wouldn't want to just use the nominal prices of the two items. The quality differences aren't just a little bit different. The quality differences are enormous. With four violinists, they take up a lot of room in your car. Of course, you don't have a car probably in 1900. So they take a lot of room in your wagon. Your iPod fits in your pocket. The iPod holds thousands of songs. The musicians only know 70. So we understand that that comparison is very difficult. I think it's harder to make the case that CPI, consumer price index problems, uh, in say the 46 to 73 period are more are, are, are worse than they are, say, in the 73 onward period. It's not like there were a lot of new products introduced in that post-war period. So when we look but in at terms di- of spread, you have a, a big difference in terms of spread. In 1946, in this country, you still have a lot of homes that don't have absolute basics. And by true. 1973, virtually all of them do. But even, even if it's the same, the bias, we still have the measured growth gap being quite different. And keep in mind, it's not just median income. Productivity statistics point us in the same direction. And statistics on education and test scores. So we have a a bunch of different facts, which are broadly speaking independent, pointing in the direction of a slowdown of some kind. I hate to say this in the confines of a a first-rate, fine American university, George Mason, where we're sitting taping this, but, you know, measured education is a little bit overrated as as the only – determinant of growth, et cetera, right? We have a lot of creative people who learn things outside of classrooms and and they change their lives in all kinds of extraordinary ways. It's, Podcast education has improved. Yes, instance. it has, just to take one example. The other the other two other things I just want to mention, and, and you can react to them as you, will, as you want, uh, on the median income, and I, we'll, we'll talk, uh, we'll turn to the productivity after that. Um, the measure of income that everybody uses in these in these examples, you do and others, is from the census. Um, it doesn't include compensation, uh, full measures of compensation. Doesn't include benefits, which of course over the period again post-war, there's a lot of increase in the value of those benefits, as we'll talk about. I'm sure sometimes the actual value to the consumer is not always so large because a lot of those benefits are healthcare. Um, the other factor I want to mention, I think gets um, it's unappreciated, and I think is is really uh, an important part of this, and part of this, what we're arguing about here is is magnitudes, right? There may be a slowdown. The question is, how big is it, and whether how many whether these factors dent it, chip away at it, largely mitigate it, et cetera. But the thing that most people don't seem to think about is that in the 1970s, started I think in the late 60s, but it really accelerated in the 70s. There was a rather large increase in the divorce rate in the United States, uh, which means that. The number of households or families increased much more dramatically than the population growth, which means that the median shifted down into the left among the population of existing people. So if we take the people, say, in 1973, we take the median family in 1973, and we say, well, by 1993, there was almost – there was very little growth, say, in their income over two decades. Of course, it's not the same people. And not only is it not the same people because some people have been born and some people have died – the, the unit that you're examining, which is households or families, there's been an, there was an enormous increase, especially among single women, which tended to be people who weren't ready to go into the labor force, hadn't planned on it. 
And that's going to distort your measure of the changes in the standard of living of the average person. When we follow the same people over time, uh, which is uh, – there are a few data sets that do that. The, the increases are quite dramatic and certainly much larger than just looking at snapshots of the median over time. There are a lot of different issues uh, packed into what you're saying. If you look at the Du Becker and Gordon paper, which uses panel data, they get results on income stagnation, which are very similar to what the census gets. Sure they look at panel data? Absolutely. Do you know what panel there is? it PSID? Uh, I would have to check. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll check the paper's that. We'll, we'll put a link, you'll put a link up to it. Uh, but also, there's another bias in the data, and that is some of the gains we have gotten have come from more women working outside of the house, not from productivity gains. Those are, to some extent, one-time changes that, yep. A, we can't repeat, and do involve some serious costs in terms of stress and foregone household production, which Absolutely. we're not measuring. But I'll also point out, post-1989, median income uh, for household-adjusted, that, that numerical series behaves in exactly the same way as the non-adjusted series. And in the 1960s, households are shrinking even more rapidly than they have been in recent times, and yet you still have robust growth for the median household. So most people who work in this area, they don't see changing household size as fundamentally overturning that we now have a slower rate of growth in average living standards. Yeah, I'm just, I'll just say I don't think that's been looked at very carefully, um, but... We'll, we'll turn to that uh, another time. Let, let's turn to the explanations. Um, <clears throat> let's. Why do you why do you think this has happened? This if whether it's a small decrease in the rate of growth or a large decrease, which uh, which many people do feels the case, uh, and you're claiming is true. W- what's the reason? Why is it that our standard of living is not growing the way it once did? There are a few reasons. One, I think, is simply there are technological plateaus. If we look at the broader sweep of history, growth tends to come in spurts. So the car was a big deal, but the next thing after the car, while it will come someday, it's really hard. I'm not saying uh, it will take forever. It may not be flying cars, but to replace the car with something fundamentally better, it simply is a very hard problem, and it will take us a while. So we had the Industrial Revolution We worked out the logic of combining fossil fuels with sophisticated machines. We reaped a lot of gains pretty quickly, which were awesome. And now we're waiting a bit for the next big thing. That's one reason. Another reason, I think, has to do with government. If I think, for instance, uh, of Russ Roberts, one of my favorite economists, and if I think of all the policies I've heard Russ criticize over all the years I've known him, uh, we've done most of those policies. Uh, And typically, a main criticism of these policies, distorting incentives in the marketplace, broadly speaking, the main criticism criticism of these policies is that they will lower economic growth. So I'm coming along and saying the rate of economic growth for the typical family has declined. And oddly, I'm hearing skepticism from a lot of the same economists who are criticizing current policies for lowering the rate of economic growth. Yeah, Third that's always, factor. That's always fun. Yeah, yeah. related we're, to the we're, second. We're come, I want to talk about this, but carry on. Consider our economy right now. About 17% of it is health care. About 6% of it, in terms of measured GDP, is education. And with some overlap, 15 to 20% is what we call government consumption, government activity, not just transfers. At all levels of government, I assume you mean. Federal, Correct. state, local. Add those all up, take out the overlap. It's a pretty big chunk of the economy. It's like 20 to 30%. Those are all sectors where there are massive subsidies, massive distortions of incentives, and a lot of bad policy, and it's just hard to measure value. So when we talk about biases and measuring output and living standards, the bias I worry about the most is we're spending a lot of money and we're simply writing it down as value-added when it may not be. Final factor, I think, has to do with who is most easily educated. If you think of hardly anyone is going to college at the beginning of the 20th century, it was very easy to educate the marginal person. And a big, and easy, and a, you get a big kick And you get it. a big gain out of it, and it's easy to do. The marginal student now, think of the people who don't get into George Mason, much less the worst student, student in your class. To make them much more productive through education is simply a much harder endeavor. No doubt. And we're relying upon distorted institutions to try to do it. Those yeah. are the three main reasons. Yeah, I want to talk about all, th- all three of those things because they're all interesting. But certainly on the education front, uh, 
a lot of what we call educational spending is 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 uh, consumption, not investment. It's sure. leisure. It's it's fun. It's a it's a you know, if you looked at a dorm room today in a modern American college and you compare it to one in say uh, 1972 when I went off to college, uh, one. One was a little more Spartan than the other. One looks more like a hotel and one looks more like a, a boot camp. And I, obviously we've spent a lot of money there that isn't going to transform itself into higher productivity. That's true at high schools. When you look at high school, you look at administration costs there. When you look at physical plan again, you look at the quality of the gym and the uh, and all the things that don't – those are just consumption. Those are not going to lead to higher rates of, of growth for sure. So that's true. The question is – you know, on the education front, again, I don't think that's the only way that we get uh, more productive, but it's an important way, obviously. Uh, so, but let's take them all together because I think it's a it's a really interesting way to think about it. Your, what your claim is, which is a clever debating point for your host to try to get him more sympathetic to your idea, is to say, well, look, all the people and market-oriented economists have been saying that markets are powerful and productive. The three sectors, the three big, there are three big sectors big of our economy, growing. big and growing, health, education, and government, where we use prices less or not at all. The, the price system is not used at all or, or is being used increasingly less. That would be, say, healthcare, where there's less and less role for a smaller and smaller role for prices. Um, certainly, government is not exactly a competitive activity, and um, education. At the K through twelve level, it's not terribly competitive. Um, what do we? The problem I have with that argument, and I, and I've had this discussion. We had it with Scott Sumner, I think, when he was on before. It's so easy for left and right to cherry pick things that are uh, go against their side's worldview, and uh, say, "Well, that's the cause of whatever's gone wrong." I mean, would you really say what would your what's your assessment of of the role of government in the economy? Again, fifty to seventy three, seventy three onward. Uh, do you think it's a lot of people say there's a lot of deregulation? Other people would say no. There's a lot more intervention. There's a lot more spending. How would you assess that? How do you think about that? Uh, there's a lot more spending. There's a lot more regulation. There's some additional deregulation. But I think if you look at the overall trend. It's toward a larger and more active government. And since the 80s, that growth has mostly been state and local, not federal. In dollar uh, terms. Right. In earlier times, it is federal in many cases. Uh, but the net direction, I think, is pretty clear. What about the rest of the economy? You, you, you pick three sectors that are dramatically uh, unattractive to those of us from a market perspective. Sure. A lot of the rest of the economy has done quite well. Uh, the Internet, obviously, has been probably the single most important technological marvel in very recent times. I think the Internet uh, <clears throat> has a few implications. Uh, one is that it has made capital more substitutable for labor. So this has helped people like you and I, you and me, uh, an enormous amount. I don't think everyone has seen a great stagnation. The people who I called infovores in a previous book we have had phenomenal increases in our well-being, and that, again, includes the two of us. Uh, the benefits are smaller, I think, for the median American. And if you look at the most famous Internet-based firms like Facebook, they employ remarkably small numbers of people. This is a benefit in many ways. Yeah, we can produce out, great outputs. It's without, a feature, not a bug. It's a feature, not a bug. But it does mean in terms of job creation and median income, uh, there has been a change in the distributional pattern. Because innovation itself, at least over the last 10 years, has been less geared toward the median and more geared toward a mix of the infovores and the top 10%. We'll come to the top 10% maybe in a little bit, but I, I, I find it strange that you suggest that, uh, that because the Internet is not job-intensive, which, as you point out, is a, is a plus. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, we had very good job growth overall. We had very little – Economic, very few economic downturns. We had two small ones. Um, the last ten years are kind of not so typical, right? Sure. You got a you got a recession in the beginning of the of the two thousands of the knots. We have a massive um, financial disaster here in the middle. I'm not sure it's typical of what's going on, say, in the innovation area. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. Perhaps we'll see what comes next. But 
Let's talk about the top groups, the, the top 10 percent, top 5 percent. Um, what's happened to them and why? And why is it different? Why, why do you think some of the stand- – there's, there's a bunch of standard arguments out there. Tell me what you th- – give me some of those arguments and what you think is the right one. There are still plenty of creators, plenty of entrepreneurs, plenty of geniuses, an enormous amount of innovation, even during what I'm calling the Great Stagnation. The question is, where is that innovation geared? How how is it pointed, so to speak? And the goods and services that most readily benefit the median, a lot of those spaces already have been filled out. Like we have toilets. There may someday be something better than the toilet, but that will take a while. It's hard to imagine. Although I I will say that one of my favorite uh, innovations that's unappreciated is the bowed shower rod. And what is that? You go into a hotel today, and the shower rod is bowed out so that while you're taking a shower in a place where strangers have been showering, the shower curtain doesn't come suck up against your leg while you're uh, while you're uh, showering. The, the the curtain rod has a bow in it, so it's not the same as having no rod at all. But it's an improvement. But the toilet, I agree with. You. I think the toilet's kind of it's taken care. It's done. Even the bowed shower rod, which I don't <laughs> know much about, but I wonder uh, what is the distribution of that innovation? Who is staying the most in hotels? Yep, that's right. Uh, in general, I don't blame the shift in distribution on politics the way, say, Paul Krugman would or Jacob Hacker would. I simply think innovations come in waves. In some periods, you get more of one kind of innovation. The innovations we've been having, they're really about information processing and ordering in different forms, Google, Facebook, eBay. And a lot of people benefit from those, but the people who benefit from those tend in cognitive terms to be better prepared, and it's not quite the median American who's the main beneficiary there. In part, it's because the lag in educational achievement in this country that these innovations have had this skewed distribution of benefits. Yeah, there's no doubt that, as you point out, I think it's a great observation, I think it's very important and often neglected, a lot of the great devices of the 20th century uh, are now widely available, right? Um, even in 1970, and I, again, I think you have to be a little more um, – uh, it's hard to be precise, but I think the 70s were and 80s were pretty good times for, for the average American in the, in the sense that they did get access to, say, central, central air, air conditioning in the south and in, in the north, uh, dishwashers, a lot of the microwaves. A lot of the gadgets that were embryonic or had come along before – were not widely available, but we got rich enough so that a lot of people could have them. And as you point out, most people, the average American has all that stuff already. Of course, new stuff comes along. So the average American doesn't have an iPad right now, uh, but I suspect in 10 years the average American will. Oh, I think just less. Like, just like they have, the, they have a smartphone. Uh, the average American has a smartphone already. So these devices come on now. Smartphone, I don't know. You could debate whether it's more important than a, di- than a dishwasher. I, I don't know. Hard to say. Well, market prices do measure these to some extent, and most people don't find an iPhone worth the money right now. And statistics we have for income and productivity are mostly picking up those gains. Keep in mind, it's still a minority of people who find it worthwhile to buy smartphones. But it is my view. It's growing like crazy. It's growing like crazy that in the next 20 to 30 years, there's a very good chance we will climb out of the great stagnation. I think one of the great benefits of the Internet is how much it eases scientific communication. This will, in the longer term, lead to significant productivity gains. It could be the next technological wave is in the biosciences and genome-related medicine, any number of areas. Simply the Internet having a big payoff. Electricity took actually decades to have a significant impact on productivity. The computer took decades to have a significant impact on productivity. And I think it's completely fair to assume that the Internet also, its biggest benefits will not come within a few years, but they will come over decades. So I think we can look to a time, not next year, uh, not in 18 months, but within our lifetimes, when probably this stagnation will come to an end, we'll have another very large burst, it will play itself out with a lot of innovations, which almost everyone benefits from a lot, and then probably after that we'll have another slowdown, uh, as we've seen. I think that's the more common historical pattern. Like man invents fire. This means a lot of benefits, like you can hunt different animals, a lot of other accompanying gains, live in different places. 
But at some point, those play themselves out. You then stagnate a bit for a while, and you then have the next wave of innovation. But it's always been uneven. Yeah. Somebody figures out the wheel. Um, you want to speculate on the singularity while we're here on this topic of the next possible – you think it's just going to be another uh, upward kick or do you think we're, we're coming on the idea that it might be massively better? I'm a big skeptic about the singularity. You know, My colleague Robin Hansen, his version of the singularity is that within 50 to 100 years, our brains are uploaded into computers yep. – no, we interviewed him about about a month ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't hear the podcast, but I think but you I know, know what he said. You know I, I do this over lunch every <laughs> <Yeah>. day. <laughs> I still have browsers which crash in 2011. <laughs> yeah. Browsers have gotten better, but I think we're a very, very long way from what people are calling the singularity. And I think it's more likely, if anything, that civilization as we know it would end before we would get to something like a singularity. So you talked earlier about the... That not all technology is neutral. Some people benefit more from it than others. Certainly, the idea of low-hanging fruits appealing that there are certain things that you exhaust their possible. They're easy. You exhaust their possibility uh, or, or their potential, and then you have to move on to something else. Um, and I, I think it's easy. You and I do get a lot of benefit from the internet, but I think the average person maybe doesn't get quite as much fun as we get from it. But I think they get a lot of fun from it. Um, the other part of it, I think that's. That I th- that I think is important and, and s- often neglected is an emphasis on clever ideas versus implementing ideas. So, just to take one example that's obviously important for mass uh, standard of living and affluence is is wa- the change in retailing over the last fifty years. Uh, Walmart, which is in some sense does just what any store did in nineteen fifty or nineteen twenty, they buy a bunch of stuff and they sell it to people. Uh, but because of their ability to use technology and use the internet and use just computers generally, they made it much easier for a lot of people to get access to cheap goods. So that's important. Sure. There's one period post-73 where you have big productivity gains and they show up in typical wages, and that's the late 90s. Uh, wages at the median go up quite a bit. Uh, a lot of analysts believe that a lot of those gains came from retailing and institutions such as Walmart. Uh, but also those gains peter out in the data, sure. Uh, and that's a bit of a puzzle. But the last 10 years, you're calling them atypical, and clearly they are atypical. But I think in part they're atypical because productivity has slowed down, because it's harder to get employment jumping up, coming out of a recession than it used to be. And I think we're seeing that, which is very clear in the data. When we see recoveries, they're called jobless recoveries, it's because there are fewer job-creating innovations going on in the background than in previous recoveries. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, Apple's employing plenty of people, right? Yep. Because people want to buy the iPad. Not as many as General Motors did in 1950, though, for sure, which is a generally a good thing. But th- those co- jobless recessions, uh, jobless recoveries, it's very clear in the data, not just that the recession of 1990 and 2000 and the current one – uh, 91, 2001, and, the, and, and say 07 onward, what we're in now, uh, they don't look like the recoveries of the past, which were uh, spikier, sharp downward, then sharp upward changes in employment. Not only are they much slower mm-hmm. to recover, but they're increasingly slower. Increasingly so jobless, 2001 yes. is slower than 91. This is much slower than either of those two. Um, talk about why that is. Hint, I think it's another, that, it's another piece of evidence for the great stagnation because a lot of people are not convinced just by talking about median income or just by talking about productivity. If you think of there being a background rate of innovation, you have a cyclical downturn due to the financial crisis, whatever one thinks caused that, but something bad happened, bad right? monetary policy. And then uh, during the recovery, you have a stronger recovery when there's a lot of Fundamentals-based innovation. A lot of new ideas, new businesses, wanting to hire new workers, generates income, employment, output. You get the self-propelling process. You don't have to be a Keynesian to think that this feeds upon itself and it makes a recovery strong. That the last three recoveries in this regard have been successively weaker, I take as kind of background evidence for the notion that this underlying rate of innovation and dissemination has been falling. And we see it in the recoveries and in the labor market. 
somewhat testable, right? We could look at differences in – we have some recent data. I don't think we have very good data going back on how much does the increase in employment after a recession come from new firms coming into existence versus existing firms expanding. But that would be one way to at least think about that, right? But existing firms innovate also. So I'm, yes, they do. I think there's Fair a way enough. to test it, but it may not be yeah, exactly that comparison. Good point. Um, one problem with this explanation – and by the way, you've left out the financial sector – which is a sector that also has grown dramatically without much perhaps return. Absolutely. So I think that would enhance your argument, right? Also defense spending, that's trickier, but it's not obvious what we're getting with a lot of that money. It may be useful in the sense that it's defending us against some threats that were not there before, yep. but that's not the same as being better off, even Correct. if it's worth spending the money. Correct. Absolutely. That's an excellent point. And, and the financial sector, of course, really uh, – blossomed in the numbers in 2006, I think, is the peak. It was, I think, over a third of corporate profits in that year and a big percentage of GDP. And it seems, in retrospect, it wasn't productivity. It was a kind of rent-seeking, a lot of it, not all of it, by any means. Uh, you can add that to the list of reasons to believe in a great stagnation. Yeah, I mean, there's an area, and I think healthcare is faces, it's, they're, they're, <clears throat> they're interesting for, and I think very different from education, in that there's clearly a lot of observed innovation, What, whether that's a market-based innovation with a return for, uh, in real terms, is, is questionable, right? So, In 1963, people were not very good at playing heads I win, tails you lose. By 2006, they become masters at it. Yeah. That's a kind of innovation, but it's more value-destroying than value-creating. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, you started off by saying that your grandmother had a – saw many more changes in her lifetime than you saw in yours. One of the ways that people who disagree with the underlying hypothesis about stagnation, one of their counters is that, well, how would you like to go back to 1973? Um, as you point out, you might feel much more differently about that, say, than the average person. Uh, but in the areas we're talking about, healthcare being the most obvious one, would you want to go back to 1973 healthcare? I don't want to go back. I don't think most people want to go back. I think we are better off. But even in healthcare, the big gains are like penicillin. Life expectancy goes up from around 40 to 70 by the 60s. It's a big, rapid gain. And since the 60s, there's been ongoing progress, which I'm all for, uh, but at a slower pace, also in healthcare. Well, most of the gains in life expectancy over that period were reductions in infant mortality, which are somewhat That's misleading. the low-hanging fruit. And then... Right. It's harder and harder to get people to live longer, not through anyone's fault. We do have some messed up healthcare institutions, but some of the problem is simply, again, the idea we pluck the low-hanging fruit first, which is as it should be, and succeeding gains become harder. But I think we will see some other wave at some point due to understanding of uh, genetics and the genome and other facts about how human beings work. I assume we see that. I mean, it in the healthcare example, obviously, there's there's physical limitations. There's some physical challenges there of, of physics and biology. So I, I assume that if you look at, uh, say, times for the mile in uh, the world record for the mile or other measures of, of, of human physical achievement, that they fall at a decreasing rate, that there's improvements in uh, nutrition, training knowledge, but we eventually exhaust those. Is that, do you know if that's true? I assume that's true. I had a blog post on Marginal Revolution a few weeks ago about track and field, and there it's definitely true. So if you look at areas where we absolutely can measure quality, track and field, how good is your pole vault, how fast do you right. run, no doubt about measuring quality, uh, there we also see a slowing in the rate of progress. Uh, in what you would call new sports, new games, I think that's not necessarily the case because you're plucking low-hanging fruit. But things we've been doing for a while... There's a slowdown. Again, at some point in the future, maybe it will be new nutrients, genetic enhancement, some other way of conceptualizing the endeavor. Steroids. <laughs> better new drugs, steroids. Better, better steroids. Better steroids <laughs> that don't harm your body. Yeah. And there'll be another spurt, growth spurt. But we're not seeing it yet. So how do you, inter how do you think about this relative to Jillian Simon, who has uh, been an influence on me, who's one of his themes is that Brains are the ultimate resource, right? They don't have the same physical limitations as physical resources. 
so that I mean, the example I like to think about, I probably mentioned it on here before. You know, you, you start off carrying uh, a load of stuff in your arms, say a bunch of books. Then eventually, somebody has the idea of creating a backpack, which is straps that help you distribute the load more comfortably. And then somebody invents the Kindle, which your book is on. By the way, this the book we're talking about is an ebook. We haven't talked about that. It's a it's a very uh, innovative uh, marketing example. I don't know if it's gotten to the average American yet. <laughs> Not yet. Tyler. Not even give the average ch- reader. <laughs> give them give them time. Uh, but you know, you go from carrying uh, ten books uncomfortably to ten books comfortably in a backpack to maybe twenty in a backpack to carrying around a few thousand uh, in digital form. So the human brain allows us to overcome um, lots of physical limitations. Uh, I still admire Simon's work greatly. I think uh, he was a great economist and a great man. Uh, I don't think we'll ever exhaust innovation. In that sense, I think he's absolutely correct. Did he ever argue that innovations would arrive smoothly and evenly? Uh, I haven't read everything he's written, but I don't know that he did. So I don't think... There's anything I'm saying which runs counter to Julian Simon. I also don't worry about us running out of physical resources, and he was absolutely right on that. Let's talk about the um, let's talk about the political economy. Uh, let's talk about the role that you talk about rent seeking. Explain why you what you mean by that term for the listeners who aren't familiar with it. Why you think that has partially contributed to the problem, and how you think it might affect us going forward. Rent-seeking is a term that refers to when people invest their energies, resources, and money in taking things from others rather than creating value. This is often done through politics, but not always. Simple fraud is also an example of rent-seeking. One trend I've seen, I don't think it's the main driver of the stagnation, but there's an awful lot of innovation in rent-seeking, in lobbying, in moral hazard, the financial sector playing the heads-I-win-tails-you-lose game. It's a notable factor, even though I don't think it's the biggest factor. Uh, and there, you know, if you look at a graduating class from Harvard, it's striking how many of the smartest, most ambitious ones want to go into finance. And I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's uh, investing human capital in the best form of innovation. But the political economy problem is broader than that. I think the great stagnation would be much easier to live with And we would be much happier with it if we had better fiscal policy and simply a realization at the political level that politics can't do everything, the president can't always fix the economy, we're not going to grow at X percent every year, that we really do need fiscal discipline and a sense of limits. And if we had that, and you and I know we don't, we're not close to it, not from either party, the great stagnation would be much less of a worry. Part of the problem, a big part of the problem Simply, we are not psychologically equipped to deal with this slowdown. Hard to know. Uh, excuse me. I, I agree with that. I think that's. A, I think it's a great point. It's hard to know what the implications of that are for political outcomes. Um, there's no doubt that we hear a lot of talk about what government ought to do to, quote, fix the economy, whether it can fix it or not, right? Whether sure. fixing it means getting mm-hmm. the unemployment rate down, whether it means increasing the growth rate. The standard – why don't we talk about that actually? We'll talk, talk about what you think would be in a realistic real world of political economy. If, if we came to grips with your thesis and, and accepted it, uh, what would be the implications? How might that change public policy? It would change a lot of what we're doing. In terms of health care and education, we would do much more to introduce healthy incentives, take on special interests – The rate of increase of Medicare spending would be slowed. That's really the driver of our current fiscal problems. Uh, Probably unlike you, I absolutely favor subsidies to pure research. I think it's a public good. I think it speeds technological progress. I think the NIH, for the most part, has been a good investment. I don't think that alone gets us out of the rut. Uh, But in principle, I favor the idea of government subsidies to science. But I think really a lot of what we're doing in a lot of different policy areas, you and I would agree, maybe not 100%, but have the same basic diagnosis and remedy for the ways in which we have bad incentives in the marketplace right now. But those are true whether we have a 3%, 4% annual rate of, of, say, growth for the average person, which, as you point out very appropriately in the book and powerfully, is 
you know, there's a huge difference between 3% and 4% a year. Sure. 4% a year, you double your standard of living in 18 years roughly, and at 3%, it takes 24. And if you're down at 2, it's it's 35 years and 33 years. It's a big it's a big difference. So it's always good to get more growth. So you know, the the standard arguments that you, know, you and I might differ here and there it doesn't matter. We certainly would argue that you know the government should should pursue growth policies, and, and three is better than two, and two is better than one. How does that interact? How might somebody who's more favorable to government intervention uh, react to the, to your thesis? Does it change the way they look at the world, or should it change the way they look at the world? I think for sociological reasons, a lot of people who would call themselves as being on the left don't stress the importance of economic growth as much as they ought to. I think there are exceptions to this. Matt Iglesias is, is one prominent example. But I just think psychologically it's somehow hard for that to become a ruling idea. Distribution, social justice are more important ideas. There's a fear, there's a clash. And someone like Gene Sperling, he wrote this book called The Pro-Growth Progressive. I didn't agree with all of it, but I love the fact that it was about how do we boost the rate of economic growth. So I think since the Clinton years, in the Democratic Party, on the left, there has arisen what you'd call a pro-growth coalition, and I view that as a very positive, favorable sign, and I agree with those people about a lot of things. But the challenge, I think, is that the traditional pro-growth policies, which would be, quote, smart regulation, price-based regulation, lower marginal tax rates, uh, ch- policies that encourage savings or at least didn't discourage it artificially, uh, policies that change the allocation of capital to productive, productive things rather than tax evasion or unproductive rent-seeking like you talk about, a lot of those – uh, people don't trust, certainly on the left, people don't trust the ability of the system to steer those improved rates of growth toward the average person. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the challenges, you're giving a very nuanced uh, view of, of growth and its interaction with political economy. It seems to be on the left what people really – their story for what's going on is that the – the rich have just stolen a bunch of stuff from the rest of us. And although you and I agree that some rich people have through the political process, a lot of that inequality change at the upper end is from productive things like the internet, et cetera. And keep in mind, there have been median growth slowdowns in most of the OECD nations since 1973. And that, to me, militates against what I would call the crudely political stories, that the rich people control the government and they somehow stop you know, the worker, typical family from organizing a trade union or doing whatever. And I don't think that's really what's going on. It's more about the real economy and technology. And there's a lot of evidence, which I've written about in my review of the Jacob Hacker book, that shows it's not this crudely naive political story of like the rich seizing everything from the poor or passing pro-rich laws at the expense of the poor. It's not it. Yeah, you know, my my story, part of of it is this demographic that I was talking about earlier, which is that a lot of OECD – OECD is just – is the so-called West, right? It's the – it's Europe and – is Japan in the OECD? Sure. So it's, it's the developed nations. They also went through the same demographic change that we did. They went through a big increase in divorce, uh, a big change in family structure, a move away from two uh, parent families, a lot more people marrying later. A lot more people, single who didn't expect to be, find themselves in the workforce who didn't expect to be in the 75 to, say, 95 period. I think that is part of the problem, and that, that's a social adjustment, and I think that's, um, that's part of it. But, but going back to the, the, the political economy on the left, how are you going to convince people on the left to be pro-growth if they don't think it goes to the average person? Yeah, I don't think of myself as trying to convince them or anyone. Uh, for me, it's trying to figure out, for me, what I think is correct. So I understand full well there are things I'm saying that in the political arena uh, might make good policy harder to achieve. It will sound, sometimes correctly, like the connection between good policy and good results is looser than we used to think. And this may make it harder to achieve good policy. Uh, I think that's one reason why people don't like the book or don't like the thesis. 
but I don't think it's an argument against the thesis being true. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, so I, I don't have enough. any particular claim that my thesis will persuade people in a useful way. I just don't know. Why do you think uh, – what's been the reaction uh, on the left and right to the book so far? We get uh, a lot of reaction. It's, it's, it's done, a lot of reaction very get, quickly. Yeah, it's been fun. Uh, Brink Lindsay and uh, Nick Schultz, I guess you'd call them broadly on the right. It's, or libertarian, I think. Or libertarian, but yeah. they both liked it quite a bit. They didn't agree with everything in it, but they found it very intriguing that here was a new slant on things, a new way of bringing together ideas, kind of integrated framework for thinking about inequality, median income stagnation, and the financial crisis. Uh, people on the left have been intrigued. Kevin Drum, Matt Iglesias, Ezra Klein, they've all covered it a lot. I think some of them <clears throat> worry that I'm not giving enough emphasis to distribution, that the ability of politics to shift distribution is, in their view, part of the problem. It's not fundamentally about technology. But they like seeing someone who's not thought of as being on the left acknowledge there is something going on at the median that's strange, and we should think about it more seriously. Of course, there's not a lot of evidence that government's very good at influencing the distribution of income. We'd like it to be so if, if we're interventionist. I'm not. But people who are interventionists clamor for changes in tax rates or other policies that haven't shown – don't have a great track record of, of it being effective. I think here there's a difference between one-off changes and ongoing changes. So government, I think, is pretty good at making one-off changes in the distribution of wealth. So in Sweden, the distribution of wealth is more equal than in the United States. Partly that is because of how Swedes are. But I don't think it's all that. If there's a policy that takes a dollar from one person and gives a dollar to another person, you lose some of that by the bad incentive effects, but you keep some of that distributional change. But those one-off shifts over time get dwarfed or swamped by changes in rates of growth, which stem from more fundamental factors. So I'm not that skeptical about the ability of government at any point in time to benefit some group. That's why they all rent-seek. If there was nothing in it for them, they wouldn't, there wouldn't be Washington, D.C. There'd be no K Street. But at the same time, over longer time horizons, it is about productivity, labor productivity, technology, and innovation. And repeating that core key message that we tend to lose sight of in these daily political battles, I view that as one of the main things the book is doing. Foc refocusing the attention of economists on science. Let's talk about the, the three sectors that, that you focus on, and we might add the fourth that, that we've added in the conversation, which is finance, but the health, education, government sectors, and then finance. What explicit policies do you think would make uh, those sectors more productive and, and less of a drain on the, on, the, on the country as a whole? In terms of finance? And living in particular. Uh, I think the best way to proceed is to have a minimum of explicit regulation but really pretty tight restrictions on leverage. I think it's very hard to micro-regulate banks, but leverage has proven dangerous. Uh, I don't think we can pre-commit to no bailouts, but the best we could do would be greater transparency, real restrictions on leverage, and get rid of a lot of Dodd-Frank. That would be my preferred recipe for finance. What were the other sectors you well, mentioned? I'll get to that in a sec, but uh, you know, the, the leverage measure, which clearly would be very useful for restricting... Uh, Recklessness. Uh, we haven't seemed to be very effective at, at keeping it rigorous is the problem, right? That's but what we, we haven't tried. It used to be 12 to 1 and it went yeah. up to 30 to 1. That was yeah. a mistake. Yeah. Now, I, it's not easy to go from 30 to 1 back to 12 to 1. There's a lot of pain. But it was once 12 to 1. The world didn't end when it was 12 yeah. to 1. And the people who enjoyed the move from 12 to 30 got a lot of cushion for the move back to 12, right? Absolutely. They, they, lived, they lived really well and it not that much pain for them. It, it'd be that much, not much pain for the rest of us. The pain for them is, is mitigated by the fact that they have a lot to – they have a big cushion. Absolutely. The, the, other, the other three are health, education, and government. So let's talk about health. You know, you said – you talked about Medicare. What, what would you do practically? What, what could we do practically? Depends how practical I have to be. I think ideally Medicare should be for catastrophic expenses and not for the elderly per se. I think the best health care system in the world is that of Singapore where you have health savings accounts for smaller expenditures, single-payer coverage for catastrophic, and a savings mandate integrated with the retirement system. Now, is that practical for this country at this point? No. We're, we voted for something else. Right. It's passed into law. Yeah. 
So in that sense, I'm not sure there's any practical solution, but that's what I think we should Current do. Current systems not sustainable. Even in any with, case, so e- even pre-ACA, yeah, when people say that, yeah, when people say you know such and such is not viable here politically. It's there's going to be a lot of things that are viable politically that aren't viable now because they're going to have to be. Sure. Education. We live under federalism, so there isn't a single stroke educational policy that we can have or even should have. I think we're seeing a lot of green shoots, a lot of experimentation at the state and local levels. We're seeing better ideas spread. Charter schools are good. I favor more experiments with school choice. Mostly, I think we need more experimentation, more interest in being able to fire bad teachers. Uh, The Obama administration is very unpopular with teachers' unions, and I take that to be a very good sign. I'm not sure they have succeeded that much yet, but the fact that a Democratic president would be willing to be extremely unpopular with teachers and teachers' unions, I think, shows the political equilibrium on that issue has shifted, and we will see continued experimentation and improvement. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether that unpopularity persists into 2012. But, sure. Yeah, hard to say. What about government itself? Um, some of these changes you're talking about are going to lead, would naturally lead to smaller government. Um, Anything you I think, you know, piecemeal approach. I would decriminalize most or all drugs. I would cut defense spending. I would eliminate all farm subsidies. A uh, long list of ideas. I think none of them would come as a surprise to you. And what would be the consequence? I think when you improve policy, there's always a question is this improvement a one off change, which is fine? I'm all for one off changes. <laughs> or will it improve the long term rate of growth? And you'll find economists from all points of view who pretend to know this given change will affect growth or just be one-off. I think in most cases we don't actually know. We should institute as many policy improvements as we can. We won't know in advance which ones really help the growth rate and which ones just give us one-off improvements. And do them all and let it all kick in and see how good it's going to be. That's my basic attitude. And going to the fundamental... I would call it maybe a natural argument at the heart of this book, which is that um, I'd probably say it a little differently than you have. The innovation is a trial and error process. It's not smooth. Um, and we have this illusion that it's 3% a year, that that's the growth rate of the American economy. And that that's a, that's a that's a bad bird's eye view, right? That's and it's a, become a dangerous illusion. Yeah, why is it dangerous? For fiscal reasons, our combination of spending and taxing decisions is leading us off the precipice. It was not as dangerous to have that illusion in 1985 as it is today. That's partly why the illusion has persisted. You could believe it uh, at very low social cost, certainly probably no private cost, But I think we're finally reaching the point fiscally sometime in the next 20 years, well before then, given bond markets, something will have to give. And that illusion will be burst. And uh, we'll need to reorganize around some other ideas, at least for a while. So are you an optimist, pessimist? Um, Where would you put yourself right now? Well, compared to whom is always the question. (laughs) Some people are calling the book pessimistic, but I don't view it that way. Arguably, it's pessimistic compared to someone who simply doesn't see any problem of a growth slowdown. Uh, But I think we'll get out of the growth slowdown. I think we're already doing a lot of things right, especially with the Internet. We're starting a bit with education. Uh, I'd like to see us give higher status to science and the scientific enterprise. But the progressive story, in my view, is the pessimistic one. It's like the rich have taken over the government, and we need to seize it back and institute... 90% marginal tax rates and a 50% unionized economy to get it all back. And that, in my view, is never going to happen, can never happen. It's not even possible it happens economically or politically. And those people ought to be pessimistic. My view is that progress is deeply uneven. We're in a slow patch. It will come back. I don't pretend to know when. Uh, I see a lot of positive developments. I think the time distance between productivity bursts is smaller than it used to be in large part because of science and capitalism in the modern world and decent governance and now the Internet. So that makes me pretty optimistic. 
but I'm reframing the boxes in ways that people who used to think of themselves as very optimistic, they're now challenged, and I'm trying to make them feel somewhat uncomfortable, and they tend to think of me as a pessimist, but I'm not. I never have been, and my basic temperament and my reading of the factual evidence is pretty optimistic. You haven't mentioned uh, venture capital. You mentioned subsidies to science through um, through government. What role does venture capital and private research have to play? It's immensely important. Note, of course, venture capital has been pretty slow lately. Uh, it's recovered from the crisis, but it's not impressing people. Uh, whether a given innovation comes through venture capital or not, uh, we'll see. But the fact that venture capital is in a bit of a slow patch, I think, is another result of being in a somewhat stagnant period. Uh, let's talk about innovation uh, in the book book world. Your book is an ebook, so you can't get in a bookstore. Uh, well, you can get an ebook in a bookstore. No, but you but can't get you can't get a physical copy. That's right. uh, in a bookstore. Um, how how do how can people read the book uh, right now? You don't need a Kindle or an ebook reader to read it. You can download it to your computer and print it off as a PDF. As a PDF. Or you can get a free ebook reader from the Penguin website. So a lot of people think, oh, I don't have a Kindle. I can't read this. I can't send Tyler some money, but that's wrong. They it's can, four bucks, by the way. It's, it's four it's bucks. A cheap, it's short. That's right. How many words? 15,000 words. Yeah. Which is the original length of 17th century economics pamphlets, oh, I might so add. <laughs> Kindle's a clunky technology. I, I love my Kindle, it's a benefit to me. But I think it could be a lot better, and it will be a lot yeah, better. for sure. It's another example of an innovation that benefits the infovores, but not yet the median. But let's go back to your book. So, so you can get it uh, – you can read it on your computer. Right. Uh, you can read it on your Kindle. Correct. I read, I read it on my iPad using the Kindle app. Sure. Uh, Penguin tried to send me, by the way, uh, a free copy. Uh, you know, you're supposed to reveal when you, when you get a free copy of something um, – I couldn't get at it, so I, I paid four dollars uh, in a desperate genero- measure of generosity to you, Tyler. Uh, but it's cheap. It's, it's an interesting distribution t- method. Um, what do you think is going to be the significance of your book for just for that? Remind, the only other example I can think of: Stephen King tried something a little bit off the beaten path, right, sure. a while back, serializing uh, some kind of book. And people paid on a volunteer basis and then he charged. So this is another innovation. What do you think is going to come of it? What do you think has come of it so far? And what does Penguin think? Are they happy? Uh, Penguin's been happy. Readers seem to be happy. People like short books. Most books are way too long. I agree. They're stretched out magazine articles. I thought, let's have a book, cut to the chase, tell people what I think, and then end it. And charge people a commensurate price. I think prices of books should be lower. Books should be shorter. This is it. This was my attempt to do it. Uh, I do think it's being seen as a marker of some kind, yeah, heralding yes. a new world. And I'm pleased to have been a part of that innovation. Uh, I'd like to do another one. I've thought of doing one on successful case studies of innovation uh-huh. and how they work, how they can work, what we can learn from them. That would be like Caltech and Singapore, maybe someone like you with <laughs> podcasts, I don't know. But actually look at people who have broken through this barrier in an otherwise somewhat stagnant time and see... What were the factors behind that? Any other um, thoughts about where we're heading and the politics? You said you're an optimist because you think, well, someday, um, sooner or later, revitalize our the innovative process. Are you optimist or pessimist on the political side? Politics has become uglier, stupider, more polarized for the most part. Uh, I'm somewhat pessimistic there. I don't see a path uh, toward it improving. But again, if you look back at the broader history of the American Republic, politics, especially in the 19th century, has been very partisan and polarized and stupid and based in lies. So it's not an innovation. It's actually something quite old, and I think we'll manage to survive it. What I do see is like more smart people than ever before and they work really hard, and they really want to innovate. And that absolutely is true of 2011, and it's a big reason uh, to be optimistic. I guess today's been Tyler Cowan. Tyler, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. 
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.